don't actually want to, but uh, I appreciate the support, boys. I am a fan of history. I like history. And when you, when you study history, when you, when you read enough things, you kind of look at historical timelines, you realize something. It's something interesting, I think. Most of history is not. It is not interesting. It might be interesting to certain types of nerd, uh, but honestly, by and large, human history is full of decades, even centuries, where nothing particularly interesting happens, right? Where nothing much changes. There might be a war, a disease, or something, but at the end of it, it's kind of the same as it was at the beginning. All the nations are, all the countries are where they started, and all the cities are where they started, and all the, you know, nothing really happens, right? You know, people are doing the same thing they were before the event as they, as they are after. I mean, we, humans lived the same way for thousands of years, really. Right? It's only in the last handful of centuries where much changed. It's not to say that nothing happened, and if you're the right kind of nerd, you can go, oh, well, they were making their farm implements out of this different alloy than they were two centuries ago. And for some people, that might be interesting. Every so often, though, people come around who change things, or events happen that actually really dramatically alter the course of, of nations, the lives of people. Vladimir Lenin, Lenin once said, and I don't know how many times Lenin has been quoted from this pulpit, but V.I. Lenin said this, there are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. Right? Yeah, everything, nothing changes for a long time, and then something big happens, and now everything's different, right? He was talking about the, uh, the revolution when they took down the czar and all this other. And it's an example. And when these weeks happen, when remarkable people accomplish remarkable things, when notable events happen, what do we do, generally speaking? What do, what do we as a human race do when these sort of people or these sort of events come around? We memorialize them. We put monuments up, right? Uh, Darlene, you talked about the, the, the rocks they piled up in Gilead and then they crossed the river, right? We, we build monuments. We build memorials. There are 215 registered monuments and memorials in Washington, D.C. of various sizes. Some of them are small. There's a bust of Martin Luther King Jr. in the Capitol building. There's a larger statue of Kamehameha I in the same building which seems dubious. I don't know if he'd want to be there. Anyway. There are monuments to U.S. presidents. Some of them are statues. Some of them are busts. Then there's the Washington Monument, right? This towering obelisk, which is not weird or anything, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's substantial. There's monuments to presidents, to generals, to lawmakers, statesmen. There's monuments to whole groups of people together. Most of the big group ones are soldiers, right, the Korean War Memorial, the, 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 the Vietnam, the wall, right? There are memorials for, hey, we built a memorial for all of the people who were inflicted with slavery in the United States. We've built memorials for police officers, for all 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. There's, they have a shared monument somewhere in Washington, right? What does this accomplish? Why do we do it? They're there to help us remember, I suppose. Otherwise, the term memorial would be kind of silly, right? But what are we trying to remember? That the thing happened? That the person lived? 
Maybe. But I think that's too basic an answer. I don't think that's enough to explain humanity's obsession with monuments. We've been erecting them forever, right? As long as we had memory. Back in, back in Genesis, people were erecting monuments to stuff. I think it's hardwired in us. And I don't think just remembering that the thing happened or remembering the person lived, I don't think that's enough of a motivation to explain why everybody has always done it. I don't think it's about communicating facts. When we built the Washington Monument, for instance, we, we mentioned it before, was it the idea that people would walk by and, and go, oh, yes, well, there used to be a gentleman named George Washington, and he lived, and he was president once. That, anyway, let's move on. We didn't, we didn't build a 400 and some foot tall thing so that people would go, oh, yes, he existed once. Right? That's not enough. It's about communicating significance. The guy did a thing, and it shows he was smart. These people fought a battle, fought a war. It shows they were brave or honorable or whatever it was. We're trying to communicate something, some significance to the person, some significance to the event. This changed everything, right? This person was remarkable. This person was intelligent or whatever it is. We don't, I don't think we, we care less that people remember the event. We want people to remember the truths about the participants that made the event what it was. 9-11 memorials aren't about, oh, well, these planes fell in, flew into a building once. That's not the point. The point is, hey, these firefighters ran into a collapsing building to try to rescue people. We honor their bravery and their, and their heroism, right? This thought seems to have no bearing on the verse that inspired my message, but I promise I'll connect it eventually. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We see this idea over and over in Scripture. One could argue, and uh, that would be one of them, that the main byline of Scripture is this, the glory of God. The glorification of God is called the chief goal of man, or the chief end of man, if you like the way the wording of the, of the Westminster it's the primary goal of providence. It's God has been orchestrating everything to demonstrate his glory. And then we have this clear command in 1 Corinthians to do everything for God's glory. How much thought do we give unto what that is? What that means? What is God's glory? How do we glorify him? In what ways does scripture tell us to do this? To me, this sounds like a high sort of thing. Do all to the glory of God. Maybe I am strange, I am strange, but I might not be alone in this. This kind of sounds like an abstract concept. When you, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Oh, okay, great, yeah, yeah. What does that mean? In practical terms, how do we do that? Right? How do we do whatever we do to the glory of God? Maybe the command brings guilt to us sometimes. You know, I did things all day, and I don't know if any of it was for God's glory. You know, I mowed the lawn, I cooked dinner. I mean, I had to do it. it was, did, it did it glorify God that I mowed the lawn? Right? I, maybe I'm the only person who thinks this way. I like to think I'm not. Don't we all like to think we're not? Anyway. Let's start basic, though. What is God's glory exactly? If we're supposed to act for it, if we're supposed to do everything we do for it, we should probably know what it is. In Psalm 19.1, we read, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Okay, the heavens declare the glory of God. What do they say about God? Well, we have Romans 1.20. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we have clarification, right? We have scripture clarifying scripture. The heavens, by being God's handiwork, declare his glory, which in this case means his eternal power and divine nature, according to Romans, right? Because that's, Paul says, that's what the, the creation demonstrates, his power and his divinity, and that declares his glory. So I'm going to put two and two together and say that his eternal power and divine nature are, are part of his glory. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, if, if sinning is a contrast to God's glory, then we can infer that God, part of God's glory is sinlessness, right? His sinless perfection, his holiness. That must, be, that must have something to do with his glory. In Ephesians 1.6, his glory is his grace. To the praise of the to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. And he repeats this multiple times in Ephesians 1. We can make a whole study of this. We don't have time for that. You're welcome. But God's glory is simply God himself. Right? The things that are true of God. God is glory, yes. Right? If something is true of God, it is a glorious truth. If God possesses a quality, it's a glorious quality. God is glory. It's, it's God himself. Martin Franzman, I still have no idea who this guy is. I've been using this quote of his for years. Said that God's glory is just the inescapable weight of the sheer intrinsic godness of God. Right? It's just him being God is his glory. Him being who he is is his glory. So if it was established, we've established that God's glory is himself, how does it work that God is glorified by us? He is glory. So what does it mean that we glorify him? What does it mean to glorify something? Well, let's think about those monuments and memorials. I told you it would link together. The Lincoln Memorial, it, it catalogs the many accomplishments of Abraham Lincoln. It describes what they resulted in. It states some qualities people would observe from the man himself. If we'd not built the monument, would all of that have still been true about Abraham Lincoln? Right? Without any of the statues and myriad things we've named after Lincoln and stuff we've plastered all over, he's on the money and everything, right? Every, without all of that, everything that is true of Lincoln would still be true. We don't make it true by putting in monuments, right? So whatever measure of glory Lincoln possessed, he possessed it regardless of the monuments or the documentation. So what does the monument accomplish? It makes, it makes what is true of Lincoln known. It reminds us of his particular sort of glory. So we could say that we glorify Lincoln by showing and telling exactly what is already true about him. The same is true when we glorify God. God possessed power and wisdom and grace and justice and holiness and love before creation. He, he's always been these things. He has these things in measureless abundance. We do not make God more love by saying that he is love. He does not become less holy if we fail to say that he is holy. When we glorify God, we aren't making him more glorious. 
Remember, God's glory is himself. The things that are true of him. What we do when we glorify God is we ascribe to him the glory he already possesses. We credit him with being what he already is. We say that God is powerful because he already is. We say that he is loving because he is. Psalm 66, 1 through 4 says, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. What's going on here? We're, we are saying to God, are we, is God surprised to learn, oh, my deeds are awesome? When, when the psalmist says this to him? Of course he's not. Right? Were, were God's deeds awesome before the psalmist said it? Right? The psalmist is saying it because they are. We call this worship. But what's, what's being done? We are joyfully proclaiming that God does great things and that he has great power. We are saying that all the earth owes him praise. We're not creating glory for God. We are recognizing publicly that God is in fact glorious. We show and tell, like Beth said that she's good at show and tell, we're showing and telling what is true about God. I like to broadly categorize things and it's a good way to organize the message, so I will submit to you tonight that we do this in two main ways. First, we glorify God by being what he made us to be. This sounds simple, which is good. I mean it to be simple. Remember, we think that sometimes we, I think at least, that this do everything for the glory of God is some high abstract concept. But it's simple. first, we do it by just being what he made us to be. As a nation, we have glorified Washington and Lincoln by filling the country with images of them, right? They're on the money, they're on this, they're all over the place. There's school, Washington schools and states and there's all kinds of stuff, right? In this, we are actually impersonating our creator. You know, I said we've done this since forever. It's because we are hardwired to do this. Our creator does this. God has also chosen to glorify himself by filling the earth with images of himself. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created living representations of his glory on the earth. A race of sentient, morally responsible, rational creatures that care for the earth itself and exercise benevolent authority within it. He told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In this way, he filled the earth with images of himself. Right? We glorify God by being humans that fulfill the dominion mandate. By being human. By possessing his qualities. Of course, humans kind of messed up the image a little bit. We failed to properly represent God after the fall. But God is filling the earth with images anyway. Ones that look even more like him than Adam and Eve did. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay. We have, Beth cited again, the, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. We're being made as something destined to be conformed to his image, to bear his image, to fill the earth once again with images of God. This is God memorializing himself on the earth. 
God has made a new people from among humanity, and he's actively restoring them to the image of his son, which, as we know from Colossians, is the image of the invisible God in full. First Peter, we're told in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. By being recipients of God's mercy, by being his holy nation, a people of his own possession, by being this, we glorify God. We have been made all this to proclaim his excellencies. And his excellencies, as we said, that those are his glory. So we glorify God by being part of a redeemed humanity, displaying his glories on the earth, caretaking the earth, and reproducing our new chosen race. So let's return to our original command from Corinthians, do everything to the glory of God. Perhaps this isn't as mystical a process as we might think. By doing good human things, we glorify God on the earth. When we take care of a portion of the earth that is ours in some way, we glorify God. When we reproduce ourselves physically or spiritually, we glorify God. When we work to be conformed to Christ, we glorify God. When we exercise our royal priesthood, when we proclaim his excellencies, when we become receivers of his mercy, we glorify him. These are not hidden tasks. These are not secret methods of doing it all to God's glory. We just, be, we just have to be what he created us to be, recipients of his mercy, bearers of his image. Second, we glorify God by doing what he commands us to do. Not easy, but simple. Romans 15, 5 through 9, I think is a good example. Says, Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. These five verses, we, we see three things listed that glorify God. We see that living in harmony with each other enables us to glorify God with one voice. Right? It says, I want you to live in, in harmony with one another in Christ so that you can glorify God in one voice. Right? So by being united, by living in harmony with another, that enables us to glorify God, doing what he told us to do. Second, we see a command to welcome one another, and we are told that keeping it will glorify God because it imitates him. He welcomed us. When I think of this welcome each other, I think of the father with the prodigal son. Right? Maybe that's incorrect. I think it works. Am I wrong? Okay, good. That welcome, that you're home, you're my son, you're, you're family, you belong here. That's the welcome we get from God. And when we do that for each, with each other, we glorify God. This isn't something super secret. We just do what we're supposed to do. We welcome each other in unity in the church. 
Third, we see that Christ's servanthood kept God's promises and led to the Gentiles glorifying God. This doesn't sound like an action on our part, but in the context, it's supplied to us as an example of living in harmony and welcoming one another. It also includes an exhortation to praise God among the Gentiles and sing to his name. When we do that together, we glorify God. Paul also writes in Philippians chapter 1, 9 through 11, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When we show love, it works for the glory and praise of God. When we show knowledge, discernment, when we approve good things, we glorify God. When we demonstrate holiness and righteousness, that works for the glory of God. We do what he says. There's a, one of my favorite passages is in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Remember this, Ecclesiastes, he's, he's searched and seen that everything eventually loses meaning. Everything's kind of vain in the end. But he says this in the kind of part of his climax. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under this sun. Whatever you find hands to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to where you are going. I love this passage. The idea here is simple enjoyment of the things God has given us. God is glorified in the joy that his people have in him, in the gifts that he gives to them. Solomon's advice in this introspective on the meaning of life is to enjoy what can be enjoyed. Eat with joy, drink with merriment, clean your clothes, take care of your body, enjoy life, enjoy your family. Solomon isn't advocating this some kind of like, yeah, well, I guess this is okay, kind of blithe acceptance of things. He's recognizing that life is hard, right? Even in this sentence, he says, and do this all the days of your vain life, and this is your portion of your reward for the toil you have. He's not saying that life is easy or anything. He's recognizing life is hard. We have to work for these things. But enjoyment of God's rewards for your work and enjoyment of God's good gifts, these things are not in vain. They are worship. Notice the similarity here between Ecclesiastes 9.10 that 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, do it with your might, it says in Ecclesiastes. And in 1 Corinthians, it says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. When we do the things that he tells us to do, and we do them to the best of our ability, we glorify God in doing so, right? It's not, again, a big abstract thing to do everything for the glory of God. Just do the things that he wants you to do, and that glorifies him. Colossians 3.17, I read ahead a little bit. During the, during the sermon series, it says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This verse clarifies these thoughts and adds to it the combined concept of constant thanks to the Father through Christ for whatever, for whatever it is, right? When you, when you eat the food, when you, drink, when you drink the wine, when you let your garments be white, you enjoy your wife whom you love, 
You're, you to always give thanks for this to God the Father. And in this way, you glorify him in just the whatever happens in life. People see you thanking God for, oh, this food's delicious. Thank you, Lord, for this food. This glorifies him. It's not abstract. It's simple. It does put limits on what we can do to glorify God. It's difficult to sin in the name of Jesus, for instance. But it reinforces, it, this, this is all reinforced by these, the, the, all these passages. The most mundane activities, the most mundane tasks, the most mundane experiences in life. These are gifts purchased for us by Jesus and given to us by the Father, right? To confirm us, to confirm our gratitude to him and to generate exactly this sort of glorification. He gives us food so that we'll thank him for it. And that glorifies him, right? There's nothing mysterious about glorifying God. Be what God made you to be, part of redeemed humanity, and do what he, made, and do what he wants you to do. Do your work, eat your food, enjoy your family, give thanks for it all. Steward the responsibilities you've been given, whether they be children or spouses or jobs or friends, the home, the church. Seek holiness, serve the church, be united with Christ and his people. Tell of the mercy you've received. Spiritually reproduce yourself through the sharing of the gospel and the discipline of other, dis discipling others. This is how God desires us to glorify him.